This episode of Startup Project is brought to you by Bear.tax. Bear.tax compels all your crypto transactions and makes it easy for you to file your taxes. Check out Bear.tax. That is B-E-A-R dot T-A-X. Bear.tax. Hey, Richard. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, super excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, so when I was, you know, uh, looking at what you did before uh, Fathom Video, one of the things obviously you did is uh, user voice, your last company. And this is sort of a good uh, roundabout moment for me because in one of the products I was working on, we used user voice as the customer feedback system uh, in Microsoft. Oh, um, very cool. The, start, the startup world is smaller than I ever imagined. I think it's also what I've learned too. So that's a, yeah, I, I think you see this a lot. But yeah, I, like we had a we had a great footprint at Microsoft at User Voice, a great, great customer. So, so I thought a good place to start this conversation was just to talk about you know uh, your experience with starting User Voice and what are some of the key pivotal moments that shaped the uh, you know the User uh, Voice as a company experience and uh, where is it now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I started that company 12 years ago now, maybe 12, 13 years ago, and then started Fathom last year. And it's a study and like, they're very different, right? It's very different, I think, doing your first startup. And obviously, the startup world is very different than it was 13 to 14 years ago. Um, you know, and it's, I think I'm pretty unique amongst my peers and other sort of people I know that got started kind of mid 2000s. And then I stuck with that company for about 12 years. <laughs> I think most of my friends did three or four startups in that time period. Uh, but user voice itself was kind of three or four different companies within it, right? And I think that's sometimes not atypical for startups where you start with a certain business model, a certain target buyer, and it shifts. And frankly, we did every model under the sun, right? Uh, and if you're not familiar, user voice is a, a platform for product feedback. Uh, originally started almost think of it originally just kind of almost like a Reddit for customer feedback. And I think our original claim to fame was we kind of invented like when you see like little feedback tabs on the side of websites, like we were the first people to do that. Uh, lesson learned, you know, if you're going to build something, uh, think about which things actually could be like, you know, like IP, you can't make IP out of putting a button on the side of the side of a web page. That's what we did. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we started off, it was very organic, very scrappy, really like, you know, that company is rough beginnings, right? It's like hard to find co-founders, hard to find developers, hard to find investors. Yeah, I was like, actually slept on a couch. I was couch surfing for like eight months of the first year we were working on that that company. Uh, we found one investor believed in us to put money in uh, and then we kind of went from there, but it went from a completely free product to a freemium product to a more top-down sales like sales model um, along the way. And yeah, scaled that thing from zero to just shy of 10 million rev. Uh, and, a, and a team of like 40, 50 folks. So it was a, it was a good run. Um, but it's, it's, it's so funny. It's, it's night and day compared to Fathom where like I started with like the top engineers. We raised money in like, you know, the first like week of, of, you know, having the company up and running. I didn't couch surf at all, but Airbnb surf, but I didn't couch surf at all. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it taught me a lot. So uh, what is the state of user voice now? It's a, uh, it's own company and uh, you're, now, you know, you moved on to Fathom, uh, but user voice still exists, right? Yep, user voice still exists. Um, our, the, our former VP of engineering uh, basically ascended to being the CEO and I meet with him on a regular basis. And it's, it's, it's great because I think after, honestly, about, after about 12 years, you know, I, I'm, I like to run through walls and probably one of my strengths is probably perseverance. But even I was like, okay, we need fresh ideas in here and we need some fresh blood. And, uh, and it just so happened kind of the idea for Fathom kind of came up around the same time from some of the work I was doing at user voice. And so it felt like a natural time to like, great, I can go 
take this thing uh, and, and take it zero to one and use your voices in good hands. Uh, so let's talk about Fathom.video, video, right? So how did uh, were you actually thinking about what should I do next, and were evaluating different ideas, or uh, how did you you know go about this idea of uh, making Zoom calls more productive? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think when I was at User Voice every year, I asked myself two questions at the end of the year: uh, Am I uniquely qualified to like run this company? And is this company giving me like differentiated like learning? Like, is this like something, am I, you're earning something unique. And so for a lot of times I was generally saying yes to both those things. So I wasn't really thinking about other ideas. In fact, I kind of like firewalled my brain off to not think about other startup ideas. I was like, let's say focus on the mission with user voice. Um, but we were actually, we'd actually started the process of diversifying user voice. And I had actually taken a small team inside of user voice and we were building out or not really building out as much as prototyping and testing new products that user voice could build you know, and sell to his existing audience of like product managers. That's kind of our target buyer. And in the process of doing that, I did just a ton of like customer research kind of early last year. I think I did like 300 Zoom calls in the first like five, six weeks of 2020. And it was, you know, it was just back to back to back every day. And, you know, that, that experience is what kind of led to Fathom because I would you know, be on these calls. You had like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I love user interviews. I love kind of like, it's like a, it's like a it's like a lightning round Sherlock Holmes thing, right? Where you're trying to like with the right questions unlock some interesting pain point or some interesting insight that maybe wasn't surface level obvious. And I love the conversation. What I hated was I'm trying to talk to someone, I'm trying to pull this information out of them, and I'm like rapidly trying to type out like, oh crap, here's what they're saying, right? And then I had like a limited window once the call ended where I had to clean up those notes, and make them make sense because they literally should were like random words on a on a Google Doc, and you know, that combined with once I take those notes and share them with my team, or even I just look at them two weeks later, I'm like, I don't remember this call. Which call was this again? I, you know, doing tons of these. And I share with my team, I'd have amazing moments on these calls. I'd have like people get really excited about something I mentioned to them or, or really confused. And I'd like share my bullet point notes with my team and they'd be like, okay, like we don't get the big deal. Right. It was like, and that was when it hit me. It's like, oh my gosh, we're losing so much fidelity here between you know, the nuance, the tone, the face, everything of having these conversations. And then all that shows up is a couple of bullet points in a, in a Google doc. And then I thought about, I ran our, as I mentioned, I ran a bunch of different parts of our, of user voice at different times. And I remember I ran our sales team. And I remember when I ran our sales team, I had the opposite problem. My sales team were people on the calls and I would look in our CRM and I'd see a bunch of notes and I'm like note quality very wildly, but no matter how good the notes were, I was always left being like, what do these people actually say when they push back on price or when they objected or they brought this competitor? And so that was the aha moment for Fathom. It's like, this is ridiculous that we are like trying to like play a game of telephone with bullet points and trying to be, you know, court reporters while having conversations. Let's build an app that just real time records, transcribes, and gives you almost like a soundboard to highlight those moments. And then you, your call actually becomes that living artifact of the conversation no one wants to rewatch the entire call. So like, let's give you the way to send snippets of it, send them to Slack, send them to your CRM, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it worked out very well. Like it just kind of like fell into my lap in some ways. It was just like, you know, this is something, a pain point I was acutely feeling. And I was like, we prototyped a few ideas and then we kind of, I was like, okay, there's something here. I'm going to go start a company and build it around solving this problem. So when you found this idea and was thinking, we're thinking about, you know, creating a new company, how did you estimate the opportunity here? Because, uh, 
if you look at just the productivity space today, even in remote, like there's so many products, right? I mean, there's Zoom, there's Teams, there's Slack, and they're like different ecosystems among productivity. And if you're a remote knowledge worker, right now your you know cognitive ability is stretched thin across multiple products. So uh, how did you think that, you know, whether there are, uh, you know, there are, there are obviously other transcribing products as well out there in the market, right? Uh, so how did you think about, you know, is this a company that could, actually you know be a company on its own or is it just a product or a feature like how did you make that call yeah i mean i think it was that part was actually pretty easy because as soon as it dawned on us like this could be bigger than just you know product research like sales customer success maybe even recruiting um you know there's other analogs so i just looked at comps right so i was very familiar with chorus and gong which are kind of the the you know top two heavyweights in kind of the sales coaching recording space uh, and in both of those, I think are Gorse just got bought by Gong was, you know, raising at multi-billion dollar valuations. And so my, my company had trialed that product. And I, you know, before we even got into this, the first thing I did was I went and interviewed like a hundred Gong users and Chorus users and asked them, what do you like? What do you not like? Because I was like, I think this already exists. And I went and dug in and found, okay, no, there's some like serious gaps or like windows of opportunity, both product wise. And then I just look at it and say like, these guys are still relatively new. They're now at multi-billion dollar valuations and they're only focused on like sales and they're only focused now on like mid-market enterprise sales are a pretty expensive product. So kind of like, that's kind of honestly like the, you know, later on we got into Y Combinator and we had to do all this like TAM defense, like analysis and, you know, there's 11 million sales and CS people in the U S alone. And if you could charge them 25 bucks a month, like, but honestly in the beginning, it was just simple as, okay, well, who would we be competing with and how big are they and how, and you know, how, well, saturated are they, right? Like they're still pretty early in their journey, but they're already multi-billion dollar valuation. And I think we can, you know, take them on and and we can do a much bigger market than them. So back then, what Math just said, like this could be a really huge opportunity. I think, uh, uh, I mean, just not quantitatively, but qualitatively, TAM expanded from, you know, say sales to almost uh, everyone, right? Because of the right. pandemic. Because right. yeah, so yeah. much of our meetings are now fully on Zoom and Zoom sort of also became a household name because of that, right? So it's sort of qualitative gut sense is there that, okay, time is now extremely large. Yeah. The other now, I mean, the other thing we looked at is, you know, look at how did those companies get started and, and how has the world shifted since those companies got started? And, you know, when those companies got started, they had to build integrations with like 10 different video conferencing providers because there was no runaway leader. And we, our research said, oh, no, now there's a runaway leader, right? And that's Zoom. Um, and so that obviously helps too. It allows you to like reduce the scope, right? Okay. We can just focus on one video conferencing provider, uh, and, and do and hit 75% of the market. Um, so there's, there are another other of factors. So it's like one looking at the total trustful market, but also then two looking at what has changed in the technological landscape that makes now a good time to do this. And, you know, we looked at that with the rise of zoom. We also looked at the commodification of, uh, transcription. You know, transcription is still a thing that's not, it's good, but not great. And one of the things we lean on versus there are a lot of tools that are just like, we'll transcribe the thing for you. Um, I don't think it's enough because if you read a transcript, it's not the same as like hearing the clip. It just, there's something about it that just doesn't convey the knowledge. So we always knew that we wanted to share clips as opposed to sharing transcripts, but we knew transcription was something people wanted. It's an important output of that. And we looked at it and said, you know, these guys five years ago when they started going course had to build their own transcription. And now there's a ton of transcription providers and we can 
do a bake off and the price compete them and stuff like that. And so that also is what led to us thinking there's a, there's an opportunity here uh, to not only build a big business, but also build a big freemium business because the costs are, are getting lower every day. I think uh, just for the audience sake, uh, can you describe what Gong does? Yeah. So, so Gong is probably the, the first big company that was built around, you know, recording all your sales calls and, and rather than, I don't think they lean much on like helping you take notes. They have some facilities for like sharing portions of the call, but they really lean on more of we're recording the calls so that we can tell the manager how the team is doing. Oh, they're talking too much. They're talking too fast. They say, um, too much. You know, they, they start late, they end late, that sort of stuff. It's more coaching. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, but yeah. And so that's a subset of what we do, but like we found like, oh, there's a, there's a big opportunity here just to actually help them run better calls. Right. Uh, as an example, you know, one thing that's going does like tells you your talk time. Like, oh, you talk too much on this call, but it doesn't tell you until after the call is over. <laughs> I was like, well, I want to know while I was on the call that I'm running my mouth too much. So uh, that's what they do. And they're, you know, they're a fantastic company. It's, you know, they've got a great brand. Uh, they've got a loyal following. And so in some ways, it was one of those things where a lot of people thought we were crazy to go in the space because you they'd look at going again. It's not an old company. It's not like you're competing you with know, a 20 year old dinosaur it's a relatively modern company with good branding good marketing but that's what i think made it such an opportunity because no one wanted to go up against it right yeah and people actively went around it and also i think uh, that uh going back to the time concept of what pandemic did like it changed who's the customer right from you know companies to managers to sales folks to pretty much anyone who's a knowledge economy now has as you know zoom or zoom like tool and they want all these services to yeah. be more productive. Um, yeah. And, the, and, the, and also just the delivery mechanism to be able to go bottom up. I'm going to, I'm going to give, you know, rather than you sign a five figure to six figure contract, wait a month for invitation, you know, two minutes in, cool. You've got access to this product. You can get value from it. And I think that, I think any industry where you look at and you, you see a dominant player that is a top-down model, and if there's a way to do a bottom-up model, PLG motion, it's, you know, I think it's, you know, there's, there's probably some opportunity there, right? And that's what we've, we're kind of seeing. In terms of like the actual product, right? Right now you can, uh, you know, you have uh, action items, bookmarks, insights, pain points and feedback and a regular feedback and obviously transcription of a Zoom call. Um, when I look at the, you know, the Fathom.video as a product, uh, as an outsider, I can just think of, you know, different interactions because you're almost at the center of where productivity or your own productivity starting or all the workflows for productivity are starting, right? Then that means if I create action items, now I already have these action item tools from, uh, you know, Microsoft's products to Google products to Asana and, you know, all the other competitors out there or Jira. And similarly for other, uh, for feedback, you have user voice and user voice like companies, right? Um, how are you thinking about in just product direction? And I felt that, okay, from here on, you can just start exploring and expanding the product portfolio to integrate into different sort of things. And how are you in general thinking about this? Because I think to truly make a Zoom call productive, now you have to also think about the end-to-end workflow from where are the users going from here uh, to actually you know, make themselves productive. So I would like to get a sense of where, how, how are you thinking about prioritizing and you know, coming up with ideas in this direction? Yeah, you know, I think one of our core product tents from the beginning has been, you know, integration, right? Like, I think in this day and age, 
no one wants, everyone now has enough SaaS tools, right? No one wants to pick up something that doesn't work with everything else they already have. And you're right that Zoom meetings are kind of like this, like, it's almost like this, uh, you know, one of those gift boxes you get in the mail, a bunch of random stuff. It's like, you're going to have some stuff, you know, you're going to have some technical questions you need to go to technical resource. You might have some product feedback that needs to go to product team. You've got action items that you need to follow up on. You've got, you know, an objection that your sales manager might want to see. And so there's all this work afterwards to like get all these things to the right places. And I think, you know, that's another place where we looked at what existing solutions were doing and they were just kind of like, here's your recording in a, in a box and you've got to go still do all the work to get it that last mile. Uh, and we saw that early on too, where we, you know, we built everything but these integrations. If you're like, this is pretty good. And then we built up the CRM integration that would like, you know, automatically log your call, auto-generate the call summary, put your task in your CRM. And people are like, this is amazing, right? And it's like, a, I think a classic, like jobs to be done type concept, right? Where it's, you got to think about this thing more longitudinally of like, what is, what is done for my user? And, you know, can I get, I get them nine tenths of the way there it's almost like a, it's like playing American football. It's like, that's not a touchdown. Like you're just, you're, it's a turnover and downs, right? You got to get to the end zone. You got to get to the goal state. Um, and so, you know, we've had folks dedicated, you know, CRM integrations, product management integrations, obviously Slack, right? It's communication. Um, oh, you know, that stuff I think is killer. I mean, you look at companies more and more, you see that this is like a key product tenant of a lot of successful companies. I mean, the one that comes to mind now is like ClickUp, right? Who is kind of crushing it out there is they from day one just built a raft of integrations and not just integrations but really good integrations too and that was everything we knew we, we was like these need to be five-star integrations this isn't you know used to be like a, you build this crappy integration that doesn't really work but then you can kind of check the box and say we've got this integration to close the deal and that works maybe in a top-down sales model but in a plg motion you get exposed very quickly if your integration is actually any good right because people just turn out because they're not stuck in an annual contract so it's been a huge boon and i think also it's great from a partnership angle you can do co-marketing around it and so um yeah we, we you know it's, we probably spend a third of our time on corp tech right now like corporate product. we spent about a third of our time more recently on like onboarding and we spent a third of our time on integrations so how, how has the growth been uh because it, the idea is very much friendlier towards sort of helping the pandemic effects and post-pandemic effects. And you started the company in between the pandemic. And, you know, we've gone through the ups and downs of the pandemic cycle. Have you seen any change in terms of uh, adoption or growth during this up and low cycles of pandemic? And how do you see the post-pandemic growth being uh, even for like, let's say, last couple of months? You know, I think most of our you know, we, we've only been out, you know, we launched really August 1 of this year. So we had a very long internal beta process, like, you know, like private beta period. And we launched with the new Zoom apps platform that came out July 21st, but really probably about 1st of August. So, you know, we're here in December. So it's, you know, been about five months here. Um, so it's not enough time for us to see any particular trends. I do think that, you know, a lot of our use cases, external calls, right? Like someone meeting with a customer and even pre-pandemic that was already shifting or in most cases, a lot of the cases was already 90% on some sort of video conferencing solution. Um, I think the pandemic's pulling some of those like field sales things to permanently remote telesales. Um, you know, uh, I think we, ha so we haven't really seen any effects of like a pullback on like internal usage. Cause honestly, we can't tell cause we're just growing so fast that I don't think we would notice if people, there's some slight pullback in that, but um, mostly that's why we also focus on, we think customer calls are where it's, you know, you can't get a customer back on the line. So if you miss something, it's really gone. And that's where the stakes are the highest. And that's what we've really focused on. Internal calls. Yeah, we have a bunch of these internal calls, but I also think there's 
other things that are undermining internal meetings, you know, we focus a lot on asynchronous communication, right? I, I send looms in, in lieu of meetings often. Um, so there's a use case there, but I don't think it's as strong as the customer call use case. Okay. Uh, yeah. Shifting uh, uh, a little bit towards fundraising and you've raised funds for your user voice and you have uh, done fundraising for fathom.video and obviously the whole ecosystem is now night and day from you know last uh, 15 years right yeah uh, what was the like experience that you have had with fundraising back then and when you see you know even uh, right now uh, how how did the experience change for you i mean i think you know it's funny we went through last winter's uh, yc batch and you know fun trivia fact about me actually was an employee for a YC company in the first batch of YC back in like 2006. And so I've seen like both ends of the, the bookend, right? Um, you know, it, it's a great climate to be fun, to be a founder. Uh, you know, I used to, I was joking to some of the folks on a YC batch, you know, you'd show up to a VC meeting 10 years ago and people would be like, who the hell are you? Right. And they'd be on their phone within 10 minutes, right. If you didn't, if you didn't hook them. And now I think there's much more competition for, for, for deals. And so you, yeah, just frankly, many more investors are founder friendly. Many more investors are ex founders themselves, right? Like 10 years ago, they were the ones getting the crappy VC experience. Uh, we've done something kind of unique, and we haven't, I can't go into too many deals because we haven't really announced any of our funding. But, you know, with user voice, we, you know, had a seed round and it was, you know, one firm did the entire, you know, the entire allocation. And this time we've almost raised money every four months. Every time we've hit a milestone, we've raised more money. And, you know, we've raised, you know, a couple billion dollars. I won't say how much, but our average check size is like 50, 60 K. And so we've been very intentional about getting lots of small checks. Um, and that's kind of my theory of like, you know, this is partially because of the market. There's a lot of people wanting to write small checks, but uh, part of it also is I've just, you know, as this being my second time around, I'm, I less need like one really loud voice, like one like early stage VC that could really show me around. And what I really want more now is a multitude, a diversity of smaller voices, right? I send an investor update to 70 people and I get back, you know, a whole different set of networks, perspectives, connections, et cetera, that I think is really, really helpful. I think it's also one of these things too, where it's really hard as a founder to assess which investors will be the most helpful. And also helpfulness isn't really well, as correlated with check size as I think you would think it would be. Um, often the person writing a 10K check even out of their own money, and it's one of five investments they'll do this year is, you know, way more invested in your success than that early stage VC that's writing out of a $300 million fund. And, you know, they, they drop 10K on the floor for lunch, right? So, you know, I we've actually optimized for, I optimized for like angels. And also I love like new funds. Someone starting a new fund, they really care because they're trying to make a name for themselves, right? So there's good alignment versus the, you can tell when you get to a meeting with someone where they've already made their brand and they're kind of like, yeah, I don't care whether your company makes it or not. I'm already on the Midas list type thing, right? Um, and so I think that that process is a little bit different, right? It's also de-risked because rather than me have to take 20 meetings and hope one of them works or two of them work, I'm kind of just slowly getting checks as we go. Um, again, that has its own risk too. And you know, if you're a first time founder and you may not have the network to do it, um, and, and, or you, it may just be better to just get one big check and go back to work. Uh, but in our case, I think it's been really beneficial. Yeah. I, I like the fact that now founders are trying to raise money from, 
uh, lot more people than just having you know one or two funds or investors on their cap table. Yeah. And when I talk to for some of the founders, especially first time founders, uh, I I don't think they don't really get the value of why it's important to have more investors on the cap table, not like thousands, but you know you want to have or de-risk how many investors are you on on your cap table and whom you can reach out for different sorts of you know things. Um, I almost see that that comes with experience. A lot of the second time founders often have this idea of, you know, positive sum game better than first time founders because they, you know, realize that this is a long term effort and, uh, you know, you have to say sustainable. And if let's say you have one investor and if you as a company is not exciting for them uh, in their portfolio, then for the rest of the you know time, you have to find another investor who you can make uh, right. excited about your vision and company. Yeah, it's 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 all like this unspoken kind of thing where it's like you know, when you're when a VC invests in you, they're excited when they first invest in you. Fast forward a year, or two years later, if you're not in the top, they're going to make their money on the top ten percent of their portfolio, maybe their top five yeah. percent. If you're not in that bucket, they're not going to you know they're not going to not help you, but they're certainly not going to be as helpful as they would to that. And so I think that's something that I think first-time founders aren't aware of. And also I think brand, right? I think it's easy to get seduced by the big brand VCs that you you hear a lot about, but at the end of the day, it's about who you're working with, the partner you're working with. And, you know, you could have, a. have heard plenty of stories from like named VCs that still did, weren't the most helpful at the best case or were kind of shady at the worst case, right? So I think in general, it's just nice to de-risk that because again, last thing I want to do is spend a bunch of time doing a shotgun wedding with someone who has 10, 15% of my company, I'd ra- I'm, it's much easier to do it when I'm talking about giving up half percentages here, there, and everywhere, right? Also, the infrastructure you know, behind fundraising has also so much improved right now because 10 years back to now, it's so much easier to take smaller checks without the hassle of founders right. doing the work. Between like safe notes and things like Poly and Carta and Karki and all sorts of stuff, like yeah, it used to be also like everyone would be worried about the headache of, oh gosh, you can't have twenty investor in cap table. That'll be a nightmare. Who cares? It's the rows on a spreadsheet, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, we're actually even doing we're doing some crazy stuff. Where we're actually like even uh, making like we're doing the same sort of strategy for advisors too, where we used to have you know you have two or three big name advisors. Um, now we're gonna we're gonna have a pool of a couple hundred advisors, and a lot of them are gonna be a lot of our early users who are giving us great feedback. Yeah. And now think about the, the effect of that of like, okay, now I'm arming hundreds of people out in the world or have a best interest in my in in our success and are telling their friends, you know, I you know, social media has made it a word of mouth world once again. And I think there's a lot of a lot of opportunities to hack that that people aren't today. Yeah, I was, uh, in one of the previous episodes, I was talking to Eric from Alto IRA, uh, and they, they raised a large round uh, from traditional VC firms. But what they also did was uh, do an equity crowdfunding round for a very small amount, like a million dollars or a two million dollars. Compared, I mean, it's smaller compared to the larger round that they're raising. But it's important for them. And when I asked uh, Eric, "Why are you doing this?" then it's almost like, and I had this notion about equity crowdfunding as well. Because the difference between Kickstarter and equity crowdfunding is now you have real interest for the customers to actually promote your product. Right. right? If there is a competitor, competitor who is entering into the market with same goals, same products, maybe even better, sometimes you're protected by your network, uh, who's you know incentivized to promote your product, uh, and you have like this army of people talking about it without doing any marketing campaign. In fact, it's what I call negative CAC, negative customer acquisition costs. 
yeah. uh, for you know a big marketing campaign. Yeah. So it's yeah, great it, that a lot of fun. It's such a crowded space now that like, like every vertical is crowded, right? And so you have yeah. to find some way to get an edge, you know, and, and even when you have a great user, you got to do something that surprises and wows people. And this is still something you can do to do that. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're thinking about the same thing. I think the crowdfunding things are exciting. I also think it's great in general. I just, it's always frustrated me when, you know, the, the accreditation, you know, rules block so many everyday folks from getting involved. I get, I kind of get why they're there, but I think, you know, once you have products that are in the wild and you're using it yourself and you know, it's great, you want to be able to, you want to be able to participate in the upside of that. Yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts on uh, valuations? Because one of the things that happened in the last couple of years is you know, every round valuations are extremely crazy. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think I'm very grateful every day for all the crypto projects out there because they make all the valuations in SaaS seem very, very reasonable. Um, even if they don't seem reasonable by historical SaaS perspectives. Um, you know, I, it is a certainly much better market than it was, you know, 10 years ago, you know, uh, or you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but it's also like, you know, the public stock market is crazy too, right? Like everything is, we're, I don't know, everything's kind of reaching this kind of tipping point where it, it, we get to inflection points faster, you know, things ramp up quicker, so therefore valuations ramp up quicker, um, uh, also, though, at the end of the day, like I don't, I think it's important not to get wrapped up in the valuation game. You know, at the end of the day, it's I, I actually push back a lot on people who like over-optimize for ownership stake, right? Like, yeah, you don't want to give away the farm, right, in your first round, but at the end of the day, like it's all about growing the pie more than anything. Um, and you know, especially if you go this route of having a bunch of smaller investors, no one's gonna, you know, board seats. You should worry about like you don't want to like lose board control and necessarily that, but, you know, in terms of, from an equity perspective, eh, you don't have to be so tight, get the right people, get the money you need, get back to work. This is like one of those, as mentioned before this, like we just did this like product hunt launch and like we got product of the day and it was like the startup mini game, right? It was kind of like slightly orthogonal to the main quest line. And I feel like fundraising is that too, right? Um, And so, uh, you know, it's great the valuations are high, but at the end of the day, it's like find the valuation where, no one says no because of the valuation and Google just get your money and get back to work. Yeah. I mean, one of the negative things about, because there's not of overvaluing and what I see is second time founders are a little bit hesitant about that, but first time founders are, you know, going ahead and valuing it at the higher side of what they could value. Um, but I see a little bit of it as a negative because most of the startup exits are acquisitions, right? Uh, when it comes down to product acquisitions and whoever is acquiring is looking to get higher return on investment. So the overvaluations, if you're overvaluating your company very early on, very high, I feel like you're almost taking your company out of the uh, m and game. Yeah, you might, you might like, you know, I, I think it, at every valuation wrong, right? Every time you add a zero, right? Or add an extra digit to the valuation, you, you lose, you lose basically exits, right? Yeah. What, more do- more doors are just not going to be open. So that's a, that's a really good point. I, I think the other thing is, you know, it's easy to ramp this. Like we've ramped valuation last year. Every four months, we literally ramp, we've, we've increased valuation. And that allows us to find, you know, there's certain really strategic folks you might want to get in, in in the beginning, right? And then, you know, like we got a bunch of folks that were, uh, that really understood the Zoom ecosystem really early. And that was super valuable. And, you know, would they have come in at the current valuation? I'm not sure, right? Because I think some of the more well-connected, 
you know, folks are somewhat valuation, more valuation sensitive. Um, so, but, you know, again, I think at the end of the day, there's really no wrong way to play it necessarily. They're all trade-offs, right? Like a little bit of equity equals options. But I, but I think you're making a point, which is I'm not sure everyone knows that it's the trade-offs they're making. Yeah. Right. By, by choosing different valuations. I think because fundraising has become a milestone instead of, you know, um, it, you have to just think about it as one of the things you need to do to, you know, actually build a company. Right. Uh, I think there's also a lot of uh, perceiving fundraising as as a milestone itself. Like you're yeah, yeah. considering itself as the goal. Yeah. Uh, it, especially if you're a first timer, right? You're a first timer. Like I remember I was just like obsessed with it. I was like, oh my gosh, what if we like raised money? Like, you know, like it's this thing. It's like this huge validation point. And like, you should totally like, it is a validation point and you should be proud when you reach that milestone. But I think as you get to do it, you're just like, this was a side quest, but money in the bank, it really had no impact on, not no impact, but it had, you know, limited impact on actually, I, just, I still have to execute the business, right? Um, and so I think it's also one of these funny things, where, like no one's ever excited, generally by the time the money's in the bank, uh, because, you know, it's one of those things where you think you're gonna be excited, but by the time you get there, you've gone through so many steps of the process that you're just worried something's gonna go wrong, right? You've already priced in in your mind that, yeah, we're gonna have, you know, a couple million dollars in the bank come tomorrow. And when it hits there, you're like, yep, cool, back to work, right? So it's also one of these frustrating things. It's just never, it's never like all of a sudden you have like one call closed. The next day you wake up and you're surprised by there's a couple million dollars in the bank. So uh, don't over-optimize for it. Yeah. Uh, so talking about investors, one of the companies that you raised funds was Zoom itself, right? Zoom invested yep. uh, in Fathom. Uh, how did you think about making that decision? Like, um, I mean, obviously it's uh, uh, it's very well aligned because you're on Zoom, but did you have concerns about, okay, if in future we want to expand it out of uh, Zoom, like, did you have to have this conversation internally or with Zoom uh, team or was it just like a regular, any other investor? No, I think, you know, before even the investment, and the investment in some ways was the cherry on top of already very strong relationship between us and Zoom, right? And like, we we were already in like their Zoom apps program, you know, as a startup, which was kind of rare because it was mainly like, bigger companies that were in this. We had a bunch of connections with like the, the product lead. And so, you know, it's, it was more of a consecrating the marriage, if you will, and be like, okay, like as it, you know, honestly, I don't know that it really changed the relationship much at all, or if anything, but it was more of like a, again, a, a symbol that we are very tightly aligned here. Again, it's also not, you know, because we didn't raise, no one is a significant person of our cap table. It's not like there's any leverage here that they could exert on our business. And I don't think they want to, right? I think more important is we understood their motivations for these investments. You know, sometimes people are making investments to get information. Sometimes they're getting it to like steer people in a certain direction. And it was very clear from Zoom that they recognize that they have a pole position in the market. And the best way to increase that pole position is to foster a healthy ecosystem around it. And this is their way of doing that. And so we felt like, okay, well, that's, you know, we would have all, our alignment was already there. We've done all the same things if you didn't invest in us. But it's nice to be able to tell the world, like, hey, we're, we got married, right? Like, they invested in us. It's a strong relationship. Uh, so let's talk about uh, how Fathom is actually making money, right? Uh, what is the current business model like? So we don't actually monetize yet. Uh, we're planning to do that sometime next year. But I actually think that trying to monetize at the same time you're trying to figure out growth is, like, means you do both of those things somewhat poorly. Um, and so we've kind of taken the approach of, you know, we're going to just start with figuring out. I did this with user voice too, for user voice was completely free for the first year and a half. And, um, you know, the trick is you have to just be ready to write off. Like those users will forever be free. 
right? And we're fine with that. And yeah, it's a good trade-off for someone taking a risk on an early product and dealing with the inevitable, like, you know, issues that come up and, you know, variable bugs and stuff like that. So, um, you know, and I, I think that's, I think so far that's borne out well, especially in a market where, you know, there is a decent amount of money floating around to, to invest in things that people believe in. And, you know, we could tell a good story about the TAM and we can now tell a pretty good story around growth, especially in the last couple of months. So I think that's, you know, and I think if we had to at the same time, yeah, you know, I think the amount of effort we spent on monetization, I'm sorry, monetization on onboarding in the last year, just to get it really dialed in. And I think if we had to also split time between trying to think about how to charge money for it at the same time, I think we'd be in a worse place than we are right now. Um, so one of the things uh, that's happening right now is this conflict between uh, marketplaces, app stores, uh, and the apps, right? We've seen this uh, battle between uh, Epic and uh, Apple, and that resulted in Google reducing their take rate in the marketplaces. Um, how would you uh, seeing Zoom app as a marketplace considering you're uh, one of the top category apps uh, in the marketplace right now? And uh, what are the dynamics are going to be like? Uh, is there any idea from Zoom, from your communication with them or interaction with them? Or how do you in general see this Zoom app marketplace grow? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, late stage marketplaces are very different than like early stage marketplaces, right? And, you know, if you look back over the last 15, 20 years, every new kind of marketplace opportunity or new kind of integration opportunity usually has spawned a handful of big businesses, right? You think about like Zynga back on the Facebook platform. Um, you, you know, you think about even some of the Google AdWords stuff early on, right? Um, so I, you know, I think that we looked at this simply as, Gosh, yeah, very rarely do you get an opportunity. You know, distribution at this point is more important almost than product, right? It's like there's so many companies out there, you know, and, and we didn't think about this with user voice. This is one of the things I would say I've learned differently. Like with user voice, I was like, we built a product, we found a team to help me work on the product, and then we figure out how to get it to the market. And this way we actually went like, what's the market? How are we going to get to the market? Great, let's find the team. Great, let's now build the product together. And you know, thinking that starting with that kind of distribution first mindset. And so we had some plans, but it was actually one of the biggest concerns we had early days of Fathom. And then when we learned about this, this new app store experience, this new marketplace that Zoom is putting together, like that is such a, like a, you know, talk about a greenfield opportunity to be able to get in there early. And, you know, there's challenges with early platforms too, right? Zynga had some of Facebook's like here, you're kind of riding, you, you know, they're figuring things out. You're figuring things out. You're both flying the plane and building at the same time. But if you can do that, and if you can kind of, you know, ride that bull and not get thrown, it's a huge opportunity. Uh, you know, and, and sure, maybe a couple of years from now, there's the, you know, we'll be, you know, I'll be, I'll be arguing with my friends at Zoom about like our the take rate or something like that. But we're a long way off from that. And so right now it's just been all kind of all upside and, you know, fantastic people to work with. But, but do you see Zoom marketplaces become, is going to be a significant sizable marketplace or because to me, it's, for me, it's hard to imagine. I can see this category of, you know, transcription and sort of workflow integration sort of in the area where, you know, you're building products. But do you see that there's a larger marketplace opportunity for Zoom here? Because I, I, I'm, it's hard for me to visualize that this is going to be as big as, you know, and Google App Store or any other App Store. Big, big, uh, big from the perspective of the startup or big from the perspective of Zoom? From the perspective of Zoom. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the perspective of Zoom is we have the dominant tech. We have the best tech for having a video conference. Uh, 
but there's like, as we talked about earlier, that, that call is the beginning of a lot of different workflows, right? And if there's an air gap between us and those workflows, if there's no integrations into all those workflows, and there's no things in there. There's nothing that stops, if, yeah, something else coming out a month from now with better tech and everyone moving over, right? There's, you know, if, if you swap down my Zoom link tomorrow with something that was better, I, I may just move over to it. And so I think they recognize, you know, one of my, it's kind of like Salesforce, right? Like the Salesforce marketplace isn't as big as the Apple marketplace necessarily, but it's provided a ton of value for Salesforce in that it's almost given that product way more longevity than it probably would have on its own because everyone doesn't like working in Salesforce, but they do it because of the ecosystem, right? And so, you know, it's unclear, it's unclear whether the Zoom marketplace, the Zoom marketplace, that marketplace is probably at worst Salesforce and at best, you know, halfway to Android or halfway, you know, halfway to Apple. It's probably not Apple, maybe it can be. Uh, Either one of those are, are really good outcomes for Zoom. <laughs> and even the worst case outcome is a phenomenal outcome from the startup perspective, right? Like yeah. that's still a thousand X more distribution than I would have gotten on my own. So from our perspective, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a very easy sell. Yeah, I think, you know, first-time founders are always thinking about the product and the second-time founders are always thinking about distribution. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, you made a really good point about uh, Salesforce Marketplace. I think for certain products, I think you still do need to have a marketplace, even though you're not going to be as big as um, Apple or Google app stores, uh, because it just fosters integration and sort of ancillary products that you want to exist in the world. But it's not a large opportunity for you as a you know 50 plus billion dollar company. And you want that uh, integrations to be done by someone else. And instead of you doing it, you can have a marketplace and that's a good way for them to actually monetize their own product as well, because it's only driving more consumers, more product integration, and more community and distribution for them as well. Hundred percent, yeah. You at a minimum, you want to like you know in the beginning, you do what we're doing, which is we build all the integrations into someone else, right? Yeah. They, we do all the legwork, and that's you. Hopefully, you get big enough, and then you want everyone to keep building to you to keep maintaining your lead. You know, what you don't want to do is not have that, and then you've got no integrations with the new upcoming tools, and now you've got. A surface area that someone else could exploit, right? Yeah, I mean, for other Zoom competitors who are entering or trying to build this, they have to foster an entire ecosystem, which will also, you know, the most important thing is time, and it will take a couple of years for them to do anything close to what already Zoom is and is already Zoom is doing. Correct. Um, so one of the things, uh, other things I want to ask is, um, what is the future uh, for you know Fathom? How do you think about future? Let's say five years down the line, where do you see uh, future? How, uh, you know, what is the vision down the line for Fathom? I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think it's it, it's one of those things where it's like once you, you know, it, it seems normal that, yeah, when I open my CRM and I'm like looking like when I'm asking my team, how are our customers doing? It seems natural that I'm just reading a bunch of bullet points inside of our CRM. When you take a step back, it's insane to me, right? It's like we have hours of conversation with our customer and all that shows up in my CRM is a couple of bullet points. Don't make, don't really mean anything other than the person that was on the call. And so I think there's a real opportunity for us to, on one dimension, become kind of a de facto tool that anyone who's a power zoom user, right. Doing a couple calls a week, which is a lot of us these days, right. That, you know, doesn't want the stress of trying to remember everything that happened, especially when you have back to backs. So I think one, there's a there's a huge market there for us, right? And we want to go become like a ubiquitous tool, which is why we've built the product to be somewhat horizontal. It's why we've done the pricing model, can make it completely free. We'll continue to make it free. Um, but then I think there's a there's a T-shaped business here where you've kind of like Zoom actually, right? Like Zoom is used by 
people all around the world, they've got a, a lot of free users. In fact, they get a lot of flack for how many free users they have. But then they have this very deep kind of like business user and even down now an enterprise user where they make significant amount of money. And I think that's kind of our model too, where there's a, there's a, you know, kind of a T-shaped business that we can build here and similar to Zoom. Um, so one, as we're ending the conversation, one final thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you obviously been an entrepreneur for now, I think 10 plus years in your, after user was now you started Fathom. How did you think about your career back then and how it changed right now? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I, I just like building things. You know, I think, you know, I think with user voice, there were times where I was like, I've got to make this thing work. <laughs> right? There's all times like we had the zig and zag and we were probably, you know, like I said, a couple of different companies within it. Um, I think more recently, sometimes you, you build up your company very quickly. You get to like, you know, 20 people, 30 people, whatever. And now you're not on the front lines. And you're now a, a manager of people, uh, which can be awesome because those people, when done right, it's like putting on this like Iron Man suit and like you, you know, you think about going right, all of a sudden, look, all this stuff has been built. Um, but I really love the zero to one phase. I really love the beginning of this, uh, and I'm excited to grow up this company too. But I just like building products that we put in people's hands and they send me back emails and say this thing is awesome. For whatever reason, that's what fills up my soul cup every day. And so, uh, you know. Long-term, I have aspirations to get more into things I think are at a macro level more impactful, like climate change and stuff like that. Uh, but in the meantime, like I'm pretty good at building web widgets, so I'm just going to keep building little web widgets until that it's no longer a good business anymore. Uh, thanks for taking time, Richard. Uh, this has been a fun conversation and looking forward to using Fathom on my Zoom calls. Yeah, and if anyone else listening to this uh, wants to check it out, fathom.video slash pod. Uh, we have about 80,000 people, maybe not 85,000 people on the wait list. If you go to that link, you will skip directly over the wait list to get priority access. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So if you have any feedback for me or thoughts or questions about anything we talked about today or Fathom, you name it. Uh, I'm very, uh, I'm not much of a Twitter person, but if you message me on LinkedIn, I'd be happy to chat. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. Cool. Thanks for having me.